Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're done with your Oreo. Yeah. <laughs> done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do we really know what happened? The brother did The brother. That's what I thought, too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah, I mean, I love our high fives. Yes. Yeah. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Where we do mysteries. And murderies. And thingies. Yeah. And Chloe. (laughs) I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. And I'm Mario. That's Mario. And you're Chloe. Do we sound the same? I feel like on the phone you sound like me. I don't think we sound the same at all. When you call your, this doesn't happen to you because you don't have you a landline. You think that I sound like you on the phone. Sometimes, yeah. So you, when we're talking to each other on the phone, you think I sound, you think you're talking to yourself? <laughs> or something? <laughs> like, Let's start over. <laughs> no, Let's wait. start over. No, 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 this is good. I like this. <laughs> I like where this is going. <laughs> we're finding things out. We didn't know. <sighs> okay. I'm very excited I have a, yeah. a, a little rhyme for you. Okay, go. I have a history mystery. Nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> good job. <laughs> you know I like a good history mystery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine's kind of a history mystery, too. It's kind of the theme for the week, so. Yeah. For our history buffs, listen I like in. history. I think for me it's more Some the nerdy. people. I like learning about people and why they do things yeah. the way they do. Which is kind of like a modern way of looking at history, right? Like this kind of like re-examination of history through the eyes of like the common man as opposed to like the great man theory or great person theory, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's a lot, it is definitely a lot more interesting. It's more like anthropology, you know, like how do these people live? What did they think about? You know, like when you look at the, at like Pompeii, right? (gasps) Yeah. Where you can literally see them in motion, you know, or going about daily tasks, you know, 
it's really tragic, but it also gives you this like crazy, you know, sense of how life really was back then. Always happen. Does that always happen when volcanoes erupt? If you're in a certain zone, and if it's an eruption of a certain type, but there aren't that many places, you know, where there's like fairly large habitations, like right next to a volcano. Not to say that it doesn't happen. It happens today too, but you know. Probably shouldn't. It's probably not a great idea. What was so special about that volcano? Um, that it, you know, erupted in such a way that it blasted out this superheated air and, um, you know, the, the ash and everything that uh, covered Pompeii, you know, much uh, more quickly than anyone could get away from it, right? So people are seen, like, running away, but, like, they're caught in that motion because... The superheated air immediately killed them, right? And the ash and everything was of such a magnitude that it just covered everything. So it, it caught them mid, in mid-motion. So when it was excavated, you can see that person, like, running or fall. I mean, like, it's, it's crazy. So it, it, like, created a snapshot in time. Um, that's why it's, it's uh, not u- a unique you know, archaeological find, but almost unique, yeah. This is a little bit of a, what did you say? A snapshot of history? A, s- a snapshot of history. I like that metaphor, right? A snapshot of history. Right. It's almost like you Boom. were, like, with episode m- title with Mr. Peabody, you know, and you went back and you brought oh, a camera God, with you. We were, <laughs> we were talking about, about Mr. M- Mr. Peabody and uh, what's, it, what's the kid's name? Sherman. Sherman, right. Sherman and Mr. Peabody it was a long time ago when I when I was watching Rocky, Rocky and uh, Bullwinkle. Um, oh, we <laughs> probably should have done this at the beginning. Um, we are giving out our first Patreon shout out. Right, a dollar gets you a shout out. Thank you so much to Michelle. Michelle for being our first real Patreon subscriber. I'm snapping right now. Good job, good job. So. Um, Thanks for listening to us, you know, at, at work. Um, and, the, you know, thanks, everybody, for listening, even if you don't give us a dollar. But, you know, even more if you do. And a dollar is all, all it takes. So, Definitely you a know, little perk. Yeah. So visit our Patreon if, uh, if you want to shout out as well. And also I was going to do um, just a little corrections. Okay. So I got a um, couple of uh, messages from a YouTube commenter. Um, that I wanted to to include um, some information that, that she put on there. So this is from uh, Wendy uh, on YouTube, and she says that um, th- it, this is in reference to my Bigfoot episode from last time. Ooh, okay. So apparently she she's referencing some more photos. You know how I had said that there's really only that photo from 07? Mm-hmm. There's also a photo by Patterson from 67 that she's pointing to that that uh, apparently would be good to look at and a lot of other photos and videos since then she says um quote but the government and certain members of the Bigfoot community pretend they're not authentic close quote Ooh. so uh thank you Wendy oh and also um there apparently was a periodical in this is in reference to yours on the cattle phenomena called stigmata so a whole periodical oh, just on that phenomenon. How did I miss that? I, uh, you know, th- these things. The internet. Have, uh, the, the internet's a big place. Um, she says that that would be a great source if you can find copies. 
Apparently, it's not digitized, so that wow. might also be why. But uh, thank you so much, Wendy, uh, for that information. Um, we're always happy, you know, if you've got uh, other ideas or corrections or things you hear that don't sound quite right, uh, email us, uh, post, you know, a comment on YouTube, uh, on iTunes, whatever. Tweet us. Tweeted us. Follow us on Twitter. Whatever. I don't think you, you can't message on Instagram, right? Yeah, you can. Oh, you can? Okay, so you can do that, too. Sign into my DMs. Mario, what does right. DM stand for? Um, Dick Machine? God that damn it. it. Is, that, is that not God what it says? God damn it, Mario. Oh, is it direct message? Yes, Oh, okay, is. cool, cool. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> cool, Sometimes cool, I like cool. to give Mario, like, <laughs> millennial tests. Right. Early, mille- early millennial. Yes. Early millennial. I'm not a big uh, tweeter. I have a tweeter. I have a <laughs> Okay. I have a tweeter. I did that on purpose. Okay. Anywho. I'm talking about the mystery of the hanging coffins. Some of it is still happening today. Really? Uh, yes. So coffins mysteriously found hundreds of feet high. Okay. Stored on cliffs. It's kind of a Stonehenge thing, right? In the same idea that how did they do this back then? And that's kind right. of yours. How did they do this back then? That's the So when are the these question. actually from? The oldest was dating back to the Tang Dynasty, which was like 618. 618. Okay, so 618, like AD. 618 to 907, yeah. Okay, so wow. A long fucking time ago. Yeah, definitely. Thousands of years ago. Um, yeah, like 1,400 years but ago. But to me, as I'm doing this research, I'm like, I feel like this is just a fu- funeral rite and not as much as a why mystery. Like, why do they do this? I think the mystery is more in, like, the know. how. It's, it's more the how. Okay. And the, and the fact that, okay, well, sorry. But we don't <laughs> know exactly why either, right? Because it's like right, this kind because, of like ancient culture. That's so lost part of it is that exactly. Okay. Part of it is the Bo people um, uh-huh. from China who were thought to go extinct. Okay. And what region of China is this? Southwest. So they're also found in Indonesia and the Philippines, but most of them are in China, and they're in remote valleys that are south of the Yangtze River. Mm-hmm. So. They're various shapes that are carved mostly from one piece of wood. And they either lie on beams that project outward from vertical faces, like like really? mountains or cliffs. Yeah, on oh my beams. God. Or um, they're placed in caves that are found up high oh, in the cliffs. Okay. Or they sit on natural rock projections mm-hmm. on faces of the mountain. Right, like little out- outcrops. Sure. Mountain faces. Faces of the mountain. Um, yes. So it, there's a lots of ways that they're they're hanged. Mm-hmm. There's no clear reason again mm-hmm. how they got there. So theories. And a lot of them are very practical. So prevented animals from destroying the bodies. Sure. Practical. Um it kept the land free to farm, mm-hmm. so they didn't, um, you know, waste land on, on cemeteries. In some places, the land eroded easily, and the, it was prone. It was prone to sinkholes. Sure. So the higher the coffin, the more respect. That's another um, 
kind of theory in that the we're like guessing why based on religion does that make sense yeah what the kind of like prevailing religion was or the the right, cu- culture right. was in that area around yes. that time. So this is possibly part of that aspect. The higher the coffin, the more respect. Mm-hmm. Um, filial piety. Did I say that right? Filial I, piety, yeah. Filial piety, okay. <laughs> in Confucianism and Chinese Buddhism ethics, the respect for your elders and ancestors right. is filial piety. Mm-hmm. Um, just that kind of... I don't know. <laughs> I already said respect. <laughs> but it's, I think, even more than respect. They're, it's it's the, the notion that they're, like, present in your life. That even when they go on to the afterlife, that they can still see what's going on. They, they can even still um, influence the, um, the goings-on in, in, in our world to some extent. Because they, they sort of become godlike in a way. Um, they've entered like that, you know, whatever aspect. I think that's the idea. I mean, I I don't know too much about it. Well, that's but. what it seems like to me. But on the most basic, on the most basic level, it's and the and respect. that's one reason why it's important to give them respect because they know whether you've given them respect and they can do things, you know, based on whether wisdom. you give them respect or not. Right? The kind of wisdom. Yeah, they can give you. St- Stuff. It's always based on on something like that, right? Some some kind of reciprocal relationship. Right. It's also possible that the bodies were first buried, and then once the body decomposed, they would place those bones in the coffins to be buried in the cliffs. But I'm not. I don't know. I'm not really sure about that one. I mean, Occam's razor. You know, that seems like an unnecessary. Complication. I mean, is it because they don't think they could have done this like within a like a, a short enough amount of time after the person died to make it practical? Yes, or, I think that's what it is. So they had to like bury them in the meantime while they like set up whatever they were gonna do, right, for the sky burial or whatever. Or it's not really a sky burial, but yeah. Yes. Hmm. Or Maybe. to prevent the like disgustingness that happens when you have a dead body. Yeah, they just did, bury yeah. it, yeah. and then they d- they dig it up later, and put and once it's all bones, they just and then they. Mm. Interesting, a resurrection of a sen- in a sense. Right, a resurrection and then an apotheosis. That's it's very Jesus like. <laughs> Don't give me that look. <laughs> okay, go. Uh, some believe that. The coffins were lowered down from above, like on top of the cliffs, and then and then placed. Others think like the opposite, that they were lifted up using scaffolding. And that's what they did. That's what the archaeologists did to get there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, they used like bamboo scaffolding okay. to climb up there and like. So that's how like modern people have gotten up to these like, because these are like really high, right? Yeah, they're like 300 feet. Jesus. I did cliff diving once. It was like 50 feet, and it seemed like real, real high. (laughs) Like, almost (laughs) too high. (laughs) Too much. So I can't imagine six being six times higher than that. Yeah, it's crazy. They're in the sky. Jesus. So, oh, perfect segue. These burials brought the spirit closer to the sky Uh and to heaven, to that spirit world. Right, right. 
Um, it also relates to sky burials that uh, the Tibetans and the Mongolians practiced, mm-hmm. where they chop up bodies and offer it to vultures or other animals. So it is exactly. literally carried into the sky. Right. An right. apotheosis. Is that the word? I just like that word, so I say it a bunch. Did I say the right word? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a, apotheosis is, is a like a, a scent into the sky. Yes. Like Jesus had an apotheosis after the three days in the tomb, you know, and then he wasn't there. And the oh, rabbits saw it, Jesus? and then the rabbits, they could talk before, but then they couldn't talk because, you know, they couldn't tell them about You never heard this, like, the story of Easter? No. That they, like, made up. <laughs> I've never even... Nope, we're not going to go into it. You've heard that? No. Oh, I thought you would have because you grew up Catholic like me. Anyway, um, moving on. We definitely <laughs> talked about how there's, like, a whole generation of people who just grew up oh, yeah. Catholic and then just stopped. Oh, so many. There's so many. So, so, so many. <laughs> <laughs> so the sites. Let's talk about where these are specifically and yeah. what each one really contains. New sites are still being discovered. So in 2015, 131 hanging coffins were discovered in the central province of Hubei. I believe that's how you say that. Placed in man-made caves Uh in a cliff about 165 feet wide and about 330 feet high. Oh, my God. So they were enormous. So, again, it begs the question, how do they manage to get them that high. Mm-hmm. Um, Washi in northern Yunnan, which is a southwestern province of China, the oldest coffins there dated back to the Tang Dynasty. Like I said, the, uh, 618 to 907. Okay, AD. Thousands of years ago. AD, yes. Historians look at the Tang Dynasty like like this golden era of of riches and glory in Chinese history. It was a high Mm -hmm. point in Chinese civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, The Tang records estimate the population to be at about 50 million people. Wow. So it was a big, big dynasty. It was huge. Yeah. Um, Their funerary practices included providing the deceased with everything they might need in the afterlife. Mm. So, like, animals, servants, entertainers. Because, again, they thought that it continued afterwards, right? right? You know? Right. Yeah. Yes, they they believed that the afterlife was uh, sort of parallel to the living world. I wonder if this has anything to do with the, um, you know, the, the clay soldiers... The terracotta. The terracotta soldiers didn't. Wasn't that the belief that like this ruler would need like an army when they went into the afterlife? So they like built all these terracotta soldiers. I believe so. Because I think originally they were gonna have like real soldiers just like die with them, but then they like that wouldn't fly. I guess so they made these like terracotta soldiers. <laughs> I think that's the story. I I saw like a History Channel thing on it or something at some point. Wow, what's his face did that? Who he killed? I don't know the name because I can't think of anything. He he died, and then oh, he died. Yeah, the soldiers were killed who killed him, and the witnesses who were killed. Oh, and his soldier. I don't know. So no one knows how he died or something. I don't Mm, know. Okay, I'm just rambling now. That's cool. So many 
of the coffins that they found had multiple bones from multiple bodies. Oh. They were also packed with sand, making them extremely heavy. Now, I'm talking specifically the ones in Washi in northern Yunnan. Okay. In China. Because different sites have different findings. Mm -hmm. You said it varies quite a bit, right? Right. So this custom, this specific one, has been tied to the burial custom of the Bo people, like I mentioned earlier. It's a, they're a, a rebellious, I guess, minority tribe that uh, they were in the border between today's southern Sichuan and northwestern Yunnan provinces. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's thought that they disappeared in the Ming Dynasty, 1368 to 1644. Um, and, you know, lots of persecutions. Right. Um, I mean, the Bo people are a mystery in and of themselves. Oh, really? Could yes. that be an episode? What, for sure. What really happened to the Bo people is unclear. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something that's definitely still being debated today. Interesting. And some people even believe that there's sprinkles of them Mm-hmm. Still around. Right. Which, that makes a lot of sense to me. hmm So another site are the caskets found in Guizhou Cave. <laughs> Mario's nodding at me like, great. <laughs> you did so good. Guizhou. We didn't even have to look that up. Yep, totally. <laughs> the Guizhou Cave. And so it's only accessible by river. And how they got there, they made of... Um, Again, they use bamboo, and that's rafts made of bamboo, their traditional form of travel. Mm-hmm. Bamboo is, like, one of the most versatile building materials in the world. It's crazy. I found a lot of benches of bamboo when I was doing my research. Yeah. yeah just yeah. for really anything. So these were found stacked in a limestone cave on the side of a cliff. Mm-hmm. So these and lots of them in general aren't well protected. So there were 30 or so of them intact, but the rest were falling uh, falling apart. And there used to be more than 300, but at one point they were destroyed by a fire. Hmm. Also, tourists can be a problem. Yeah. So some leave banknotes as a respectful offering. Others just throw their cigarettes everywhere. As a disrespectful offering? <laughs> Like, I think this article talked about how, from CNN, how there was, like, a skull with a cigarette in its mouth. Like, Are you Peter Griffin? Come on. Oh, yeah. That's exactly (laughs) something Peter Griffin would do. Well, he did. Remember the episode that's doing, like, the whole uh, poltergeist thing? Oh, yeah. He finds the skull and he's, like, horrible. It happened. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, Authorities even put up fake ones. To kind of like... Try to lure people. Yeah, you guys should go check out the ones over there. Those are super authentic. Yeah, while keeping the real ones like intact. Uh Uh-huh. Another site is the ones in the Philippines. So uh, the province of Sagada. It's done by members of the Igoro tribe of Mountain Province, this area in the Philippines. And they are the only... Culture that I found, this guy, this could, there could be more that are still practicing this today. Mm. Um, but it's not as often, it's not in the same ways, and it's only once every few years. Okay. So, for like really special people. 
Um, yes. Mm-hmm. So in this article, this CNN article by Katie Hunt, she talked to a woman named uh, Soledad Bellingham, and she is part of the tribe. She's 70 and a school teacher. So she says that moving the bodies of the dead higher up brings them closer also to their other ancestors, not just the sky, but the spirits themselves. Mm -hmm. Quote, there are two fears of being buried. The first is that dogs will eat the corpse, so the coffins are placed high up on a cliff out of their reach. Secondly, years ago, during the headhunting days, savages from different parts of Kalinga and eastern Bontak province, our enemies, would hunt for our heads and take them home as trophy. That's another reason why the dead were buried high up, so nobody could reach them. Interesting. That was something I never even I would not have thought of right? that, yeah. Interesting. But basically to, in general prevent the desecration of the corpse. Yes, in general. Because the preservation of the corpse is also seen as important for the preservation of life after death, right? Yes. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So these coffins are tied or nailed to the sides of the cliffs. They're about three feet long. The bodies are buried in the fetal position. Oh. Um, they believe that a person should depart the world the same way they entered the world. I like that. Yeah, but there's a, it, there's a nice symmetry to that. Practically, it a safe safe space, safe right. space. So, for their funeral practices, the deceased is put on a wooden sangadil or death chair, and the corpse is tied with um, vines. And then covered with a blanket. So then they have the deceased on a chair and then they face the main door of the house and that's the wake. And the relatives come in and mm-hmm. they pay t- their res- respects and vigils like this can be like multiple days. Mm-hmm. So the cadaver itself is smoked to prevent fast decomposition and um, it's also a means to conceal the, the smell. Sure. Before being taken for actual burial, it is that is when it's secured into the fetal position and then it's wrapped again in a blanket and Mm -hmm. tied quote, the corpse is wrapped like a basketball on the way there. Mourners do their best to grab it and carry it because they believe it is good luck to be smeared with the dead's blood. End quote. That's from Soledad. So this is true. The fluids from the corpse are thought to bring success and um, actually like, kind of transfer and pass on the skills that the diseased person had onto mm. the living. Yeah. And um, those who came in contact. Yeah, there's a kind of, you know, logic to that. And it's not uncommon for there to be some some kind of idea in cultures of a transference of, as, you know, of some kind of, um, you know, essence from one person to another. Yes. If you're eat their heart, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. I learned a lot about funeral rites mm-hmm. in this little scourge of Very information. Very yeah. So after they have the cadaver in the coffin, the young men of the tribe climb up the cliff and place the corpse in the coffin that they have set up there. Hmm. So they set up, in other words, they set up the coffin, they nail it or, or tie it, right? and then they bring the, the, body. the body up right. wrapped Oh, I see. So, and then they put it in there, and then they secure the top. Right. Oh, okay. That make that yeah. No, that definitely makes more sense than 
putting it in the coffin and then taking the whole apparatus up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bones are cracked to allow it to fit. Uh-huh. Then it's wrapped. Um, Soledad says that the bone cracking doesn't happen as much anymore. Um, and the coffins these days are longer because it's something, yeah. I guess, it's has seen as now a become... Now. Right, yeah. right, right. Plus, with modern technology, I'm assuming they can do this more easily. You know, they have, like, the, you know, pins and, like, equipment, you know, climbing equipment and stuff, right? Things they didn't have in, like, the 8th century. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. Um, so, all right. I want to talk about the Toraja people mm-hmm. in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. They also have, um, they also have hanging coffins, coffins found high up in, in cliffs. But they have this whole funeral, their funeral rites are incredibly interesting. They're elaborate, they're kind of strange, um, but it's, it's their culture, it's what they believe. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to put a little animal slaughter blood trigger out there for anybody who doesn't (laughs) maybe squeamish. Um, So they believe that death isn't sudden, but a slow, gradual process toward what's called puya, or the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So it's elaborate. They're expensive. The richer and more powerful you were, the more expensive the funeral was. And... Sometimes they were even often, they were, like, even held weeks or months or, like, sometimes even years after the death because this, the family ne- needs to, like, gather the funds. Wow. And, like, place their money where it needs to be so they can, like, do this. Huh. So while sometimes during this hiatus, the body is wrapped in cloth and its spirit is believed to roam the village during this time. So in the Aluk religion, which is... A form of Hindu. Yes. Yes. Okay, sorry. I was, like, double-checking in my head if that was right. Um, Uh, I do not know. Well, I don't know. I feel like you know lots of things, so it could have been on your list. That's why I looked. I was like, maybe Mario knows. Sure. Um, Only nobles have the right to what is called a death feast. Mm. So it's attended by thousands. It lasts several days. Sounds sweet. There are music, there's music and poems, there's uh-huh. chants. Yeah. Um, sounds, like a, sounds like a good party. No, no, no. No? It's, there's cry, there's oh, still cry. crying oh, and wailing. Cry. Oh. And it's it traditional. Like it is not a celebration. Oh. Yeah, so it's an expression of grief. Mm-hmm. It is an expression of grief. Yeah. So there is music, there's chants, there's crying, and um, there's wailing. But this only happens for nobles. It mm-hmm. doesn't happen for young children or poor, mm. low-status adults. Sure. Another component of the ritual is the slaughter of the water buffalo. So this is very, very important. Mm. The more powerful the person, the more buffalo that are slaughtered. Oh. It is believed that the journey to Puya will be quicker if they have lots of buffalo. Yeah, more buffalo power gets you to... What is it I called? I mean, wool. Uh, puya? Puya. Puya. You know, Form I, of transportation. Wool. Sure. Yeah. Meat. Yeah. Friendship. Friendship. You know. It's all there. Yeah. I all mean, you need. what was it? Fre- Fred the Bison from last episode? Frank. Frank. Fra- Frank the Bison. Oh, poor Frank. I mean, maybe he could be one of your bison, you know. Surprised bison. Yeah. These are buffalo. Oh, excuse me. 
didn't mean to mix buffalo up your buffalo are with like your bison. Furry and like <laughs> way I, way cuter than bison. Honestly, do not know the difference between them. Buffalo are kind of cute. <laughs> okay, we're moving on. The oh slaughter God. of the water buffalo. Okay. Is the so it is it is the height of the death feast. Mm-hmm. Um here there is music and there's dancing and they're slaughtering buffalo and and they slaughter hundreds of pigs. They slaughter tens of buffalo and hundreds of pig was the the description. Like wow. beheading and all this crazy stuff with there's music and, and dancing and there's young boys who catch blood, spurting blood in long bamboo tubes. Oh. Um Another another integral part of the ceremony is the cockfight. So it's considered sacred because it involves the spilling of blood onto the earth. In particular, the tradition requires the sacrifice of at least three, but it's more common for there to be 25 pairs of chickens uh, to be set against each other. Sure, I mean, why ceremony. go with three when you can have 25? I don't know. <laughs> you know. And maybe it's probably much easier to breed chickens than it was a long time ago when those rules were written or put into context. But the chickens that we breed nowadays couldn't be involved in a cockfight because they're too fucking huge. They can't move. Yeah. You know. Either way, they're being horribly mistreated, so probably shouldn't do either. Um, Okay, so there are three methods of burial. The coffin may be laid in a cave or in a carved stone grave or hung on a cliff. So they are filled with possessions. Um, they put things in there that they might need in the afterlife. Same idea. Um, in some areas, a stone cave um, is found, um, like a huge, huge cave is found that has like families, a large mm-hmm. enough to mm-hmm. fit a whole family. Mm-hmm. Um, they even have little like cute little statues. They're carved out of wood called Tao Tao. And um, that's usually placed in the cave, and it's it. They look out over the land. Mm. So the coffin of a baby or a child may be hung from ropes sometimes on the face of a cliff or from a tree. Uh, these hanging graves last for like a while, a lot of years, until they um, rot and the coffin just right. tumbles to the ground. Right, not a permanent solution. The in the ritual called. Manene, that takes place each year in August. The bodies of the deceased, okay, so they're exhumed and then they're washed, groomed, and dressed in new clothes. And these mummies are often walked around the village. <clears throat> wow. That is some in- intense uh, appreciation of your there, ancestors. It, it, there's there. a lot. Okay. There's a lot. Um, That's a lot. With the slaughtering and the yeah. blood catching. And they do that every year. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. wow. I couldn't leave that out, you know? Oh, yeah, no. That's a good tidbit. So, in general, these coffins have been difficult to protect. I kind of touched on this earlier. Mm-hmm. So, in Matangba, Sichuan, um, the most popular, it's the most popular site to see these coffins. So they're protected as, quote, natural cultural relics, end quote. Um, But even though they're 300 feet off the ground, they've been looted before. Um, 
Archaeology idiots. It's crazy. Archaeology in China is is well funded. It's well regarded, but the stu- for this reason, this study, it's been kind of neglected. Well, ar- archaeology and and the study of ancient cultures in China, it it kind of goes both ways. From what I've heard, <clears throat> it is well funded. Like the sciences are generally very well funded in China, but um, it's also like you have to hew to the. The com, you know, the party line, right? If you're looking into things that maybe are unfortunate or that the the party doesn't want to, the communist party doesn't want you to learn about, yeah, then you're not going to get funded. You know, like with uh, Chershin Man that I talked about before. You know, right? Like they they don't really care to look into, you know, the the sort of whether or not you know Chershin Man is like the you know whatever you know this this Western. you know, person who came over or, or if it's like tied to the Uyghurs or whatever, it's like, they're not going to fund that. Um, and what's interesting about all of this information that we, all of the, the resources and knowledge that we know, it's usually based on individual sites rather than the practice as a whole. Hmm. So it's more like people know about this site and people know about this site but they don't really know about all of them or both of them. Or Interesting. Yes. So no one's really put together, like, a theory of what this meant in, in the wider context of these right. cultures. Right, And I think it's because there are so many reasons and there are so many ways that mm-hmm. a certain culture or religion can can look at it and justify it. Yeah. Um, but there are archaeologists who have been fighting to restore the coffins and put more emphasis on them. Cool. That's it. That's all I've got for the hanging coffins. So I have a CNN article by Katie Hunt, of course, Wikipedia, the hanging coffins wiki, and the Toraja people wiki, and a roughguides.com article by Kiki Deer. Those are my sources. Nice sources. Okay, I'm going to do this week. Segway, segway, segway. My segue to my topic is, okay, so I'm going to do the Antikythera mu, uh, um, mechanism, the Antikythera mechanism. So, so, um, Antikythera. 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 Where's the emphasis? I'm not entirely sure. Antikythera. It's a small I island. I thought it was antique. Antikythera. It is not. Um, okay. it, it's a small island which is near the island of Kythera. So that's, I think, why it's called Antikythera because it's like right next to it. But it's just like this little island. And it um, is in the Aegean Sea. So this is, um, you know, on the sort of, uh, I guess, w- western edge of, of like Greece, right? Um, so it's in ancient Greece. And there you know, was a, um, okay, so so going to sort of set the scene here. So spring 1900, a group of... Yeah, yeah, set the scene. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little story here, okay? So, so I'm going to start it. Okay. <laughs> story time, yeah, this yeah. Story time, okay. So spring 1900, a group of Greek sponge divers were oh. returning from a sponge dive I that they had done in, in North Africa. I don't know whether they met, you know, SpongeBob. It doesn't say. I'm not sure. No, was that? Is that not funny? Okay, cool. That's totally fine. Okay, so when they were coming back from North Africa, um, they encountered this like terrible storm, right? 
and they had to seek refuge. So what they found was a little um, lee, so a, a sort of area outside of the wind and, and storm and everything, on the small island of Antikythera. And once the storm had passed and everything was okay the next day or whatever, um, one of the divers, Elias Stadiatis, said, you know, sort of decided that he was going to suit up and go down and look for giant clams. The idea nice. being, you know, that they could have like a celebratory feast with these giant clams. Sounds pretty <laughs> sweet. Um, and he went down to the sea floor, uh, which is pretty deep in that area. And what Elias found was a cliff about 140 feet down that went, you know, even further, like down into darkness. Wait, an underwater cliff? An underwater cliff. Mm. So he kind of saw that, right? And then and then he looked a different way, and he saw this huge ancient shipwreck. Whoa. And at first, he was like super fucking creeped out. Hell yeah, I'd be like, what? Well, not only because of the shipwreck, but also because he thought that he saw human remains, like, all around him, like, dismembered human remains. <gasps> what? Now... Like, bones? It took... Well, he, he, he realized when he brought one of the arms up that it was actually bronze and that these were actually statues <gasps> and not human bodies. Oh, my God, that would be so scary. Although there, oh, there have subsequently, like, many years later, been human remains found from the wreck. So, not that okay. there aren't human remains associated with the Antikythera wreck, right. but not not right at the beginning. Bronze statues. Lots of bronze statues. So, several months later, those same divers, the sponge divers, um, got a contract from the Greek government to return and explore and extract um, what they could of the, of the ancient wrecks. So, it um, took them about 10 months in that initial excavation. And this was actually reportedly the first large-scale underwater archaeological excavation wow. like, ever in the world that we know about. All in the pursuit of clams. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All for the love of clams, um, if not for the love of clams. So the uh, sponge divers discovered, you know, a lot of marble and bronze sculptures, a lot of coins, a lot of these things called amphorae. Um, which are like jars that typically held like wine and stuff and, and just a lot of other um, artifacts. But what they also discovered, they didn't know it at first, was one of the greatest modern mysteries of science. <laughs> the Antikythera mechanism. Dun, 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 dun. So this was a strange device that was recovered from this ancient Greek shipwreck and, you know, the ship itself was, you know, just to understand, was enormous. This is probably part of what contributed to it going down was that it was overladen with treasure, <gasps> which is, is so cool, right? You know, there's like, it, it's probably the site that has yielded the most from, from ancient Greeks, wow. um, you know, of, That's of amazing. any. And it's been, they've, they've gone back to it over the years. Can you there imagine was even those a, like, the like people on the ship, I bet they're just like drinking and having a great fucking time because their tri their ship is filled with gold. Like. Right, right. That's funny. Um, do, 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 do. And the ship itself was really, really big. It was about 50 meters long, which is about 164 right. feet. It's about half a football field. Jesus. So it was a huge, huge ship considering that this ship went down in about 70 to 60 BCE. Wow. Yeah, so this is in the really the early. first century before the, the turn, right? To, uh, before year zero. Right. 
and it's it's been dated pretty um to a pretty high degree um of certitude because coins have been found with with dates which is oh, always okay. like the best way that right because it literally guaranteed. says like in in the whatever years that this person was the emperor or whatever and then you look it up and it's like it's those years okay there you go can't have been any later than this wow exactly and one um, historian, you know, just to, to kind of highlight the importance of the, the Antikythera mechanism discovery, said that um, the Antikythera mechanism was, quote, the single most information-rich object that has been uncovered by archaeologists from ancient times, close quote. And I'll, I'll kind of explain over the course of these two episodes, because I'm going to do a two-parter, why this is the case, why it's, it's valid to say that. Um, and why we've gotten so much information out of this out of this um, device, and while the precise origins and intent, you know, pre- precisely of it do remain a mystery, um, people generally consider it to be the world's oldest computer, right? So if you you were telling me this earlier, right, that's the one thing you've heard about it. Yeah, yeah. And it, I'm sure if you've heard about the Antikythera mechanism, that's the one thing you've heard about it. That's an ancient computer. But what does that mean? Right. We'll, we'll get into all of that. So it's, it's really, really interesting uh, for a, a nerd such as myself. Antikythera, play Despacito. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Justin Bieber version. <laughs> um, and many people have spent their pretty much their entire careers trying to figure out the mystery of the Antikythera mechanism. It. Yeah, it, it's just, it, it holds a... Um, uh, you know, it's it's just so cryptic. And because of the work of all those people, you know, spending their careers looking into this, right, for us, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for your service to science. And, um, science? you know, science, we now have a pretty good understanding of, you know, how it was supposed to work, kind of what it did, how one could use it. But there is a lot that is still a mystery. Okay, so but before we get kind of too into all of that, though, I just kind of wanted to mention what what it actually looks like. Okay, yes. in 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 the in the state in which it was actually found, looks like a brick. It it, <laughs> it looked like a big mess. Really, it it um, was of course over two thousand years old. Um, been it had been sitting there at the bottom of the Aegean Sea. It had become encrusted, corroded, calcified, um, crushed. You know, what's another word that starts with C? I I don't know. Coddled. Uh, No. no. It was not coddled, (laughs) precisely. Um, But anyway, it it was at first deemed simply item 15087. It was mostly bronze, like a lot of what was salvaged from the wreck, because bronze will persist in that environment, although it will become corroded. And it was, upon first inspection, according to a New Yorker story that I read, a, quote, shoebox-sized lump of bronze, which appeared to have a wooden exterior. Inside were what seemed to be fused metal pieces, but the bronze was so encrusted with barnacles and calcium that it was difficult to tell what it was. Close quote. So they didn't know exactly what it was, but it didn't look like much of anything. Um, It was 
it seemed, used to be housed within a wooden box. It was about 13 and a half by 7 by 3 and a half inches, just to kind of give you an idea. People okay. say it's it's about the size of a laptop computer, oddly enough. Oh. it kind of, That's kind of like what it kind of would have it's looked like. It's much bigger than I was thinking it was. I thought it would be able to... F- Fit in my hand. No, not that small, but it was pretty small. It was it was very mobile, you know. Cool. Yeah, and you know this weird looking artifact um, was, like I said, not really that immediately exciting to the divers or to, or to the archaeologists. The statuary was what really got people going. You know, the marble, the bronze. Okay. I think another important thing to understand is that the bronze statuary that's survived from the Grecian, the the Hellenistic period, is mostly from shipwrecks. Apparently, a lot of the bronze, like almost all of the bronze, was melted down and recycled over and over again throughout the centuries. So any bronze statuary that was made like back in ancient Greek times would have been melted down hundreds or thousands of years ago. Which I thought was interesting. I didn't know that. That's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah, just like, you know, masterpieces that would be invaluable today. Somebody just, like, melted them down and made, you know, cannon um, balls out of them <laughs> or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's, like, insane. Uh, you said the word insane. Yes. Insane. It was, <laughs> it was, was insane, though. I think so. That's a good word for it. And again, you know, I think what you have to understand is we couldn't we couldn't see into this. So when you look at it, you know, look, look up a if you can look up a picture of it right now. You know, go to Google, put in Antikythera mechanism. You can see kind of a wheel on the front of it, right? So you can tell there's there's some kind of wheel or something, and you you can kind of see what looks kind of like a gear on it. And you know, obviously that's kind of intriguing, but it, they really couldn't see into it to see really what was going on. So after about a year or two of it just sitting in a drawer somewhere, a Greek archaeologist named Spiridon Stais re-examined item 15087 and saw that its wooden exterior had split and that it had kind of fallen into uh, a few different fragments, which ranged from just over an inch to six and a half inches long. And over the years, the device, the mechanism, would, would continue to deteriorate into different fragments. Um, Stius saw a bronze dial, now that it had kind of opened up, with an inscription in ancient Greek about two millimeters high. Very small, but very precise Greek lettering. What did it say? We'll, we'll, we'll get into, ah! we'll, we'll get into a, a lot of that too. And that's one of the reasons why, again, they talk about this as being such an information-rich uh, artifact, because of the writing that's there as well. There were also these very precisely cut triangular teeth, reminiscent, honestly, of a mechanical clock. A A mechanical clock. Um, The kind of mechanical clock that wouldn't really be seen until, like, the 14th century, like 1,400 years after this thing would have existed. So it, it's sort of this thing out of time. You know, he, he realized from, from the very beginning studies that um, this should not have existed because the precision gearing, we did not think that it was possible to create that without the kind of technology that, that they had, had before the 14th century. Wow. And because of We got the, a messed up timeline. Exactly. It's what's called prochronistic. 
something that's too advanced. I like that word. Seemingly, exactly. You've you've heard anachronistic, right? Something that appears, you know, out of time uh, in in the sense that it's. Um, you know, old timey, but uh, prochronistic, the opposite. It's it's too advanced for its time, um, and you know, uh, there were kind of two main theories, uh, main approaches to this analysis in in, in the early days. Um, some people like J. N. Sferonos, so many cool Greek names in this, right? Um, of the National Museum were in the camp that said that this was. A kind of astrolabe, okay? So an astrolabe—that's what I was immediately <laughs> going to talk about. Okay, so <laughs> that's okay. Um, so an astrolabe is a time-telling device that can also be used in ship navigation in astronomy. So it was a way to, to keep you know constant time, so that you could measure where you know the um, the movement of the stars and relative to your position. Oh, Therefore, okay. you could tell you know by triangu- triangulation. How far you had gone, and, and therefore where you were on a on a map, right? And this kind of device, an astrolabe, was known to have been used at, at least by the eighth century, um, oh, wow, um, A.D. And other um, so in in opposition to this view of the, of the astrolabe, other researchers like Albert Rehm, a German philologist, a language expert, cool. philologist um, thought that this view was undervaluing what the mechanism really was. He thought that it might be what's called an orrery or even the fabled sphere of Archimedes, which which (gasps) is a particular orrery. So an orrery is a mechanical model of the solar system, which can tell the positions and the movements of, you know, the sun, planets, moons. So a way to visually represent the movement of, of the different celestial bodies and therefore, you know, kind of predict their positions in the future. Right. Um, and this is kind of the, um, the idea of, of of what the potential of the Antikythera mechanism could could have been. So research on the Antikythera mechanism unfortunately kind of languished. After those first few years, there wasn't too much that more that they could really say about it. Because again, they couldn't really see what was in there and and uh, you know examine it in any meaningful way. So the astrolabe hypothesis kind of held sway for the next 50 years or so. Okay. Till we get to the 1950s, when some acknowledgement of the possibility, you know, that this kind of ancient machine of this kind of complexity, you know, kind of w- was was allowed to take any sort of hold. Before this, people said, okay, this is probably some more modern mechanism that got dropped onto the shipwreck, you know, so you're just kind of like oh, not saying, that doesn't really make sense because of the way it was found. It was under a lot of other stuff. From that was clearly from that age. It was from yeah the 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 wreck and it was dated you know to these particular. So we know that it was from the the first century you know uh, BCE, um, but uh, people just didn't want to admit that right that there could have been this kind of like modern looking thing that came from so long ago, and the whole you know idea of a sophisticated ancient technology was was kind of discredited in in the culture at that time. But there was one researcher who was really intrigued by the mechanism and was sophisticated enough yeah. to realize 
you know, the true implications of what it could be. I have so many questions, but I... I already know you're going to answer them. Like, sure. If I don't, <laughs> if I don't answer them, you know, um, I guess save them for next time. Maybe I'll answer them next time because uh, I'm definitely going to do a two-parter. Um, so that one researcher, you know, who kind of like was was that visionary who saw um, was the uh, was Derek Dalis De Sola Price. Derek De Sola Price, and his name comes up over and over and over again when you uh, research this topic. Um, Price was a polymath. Uh, an expert in many, many things. And he was mainly trained in physics, but was also a pioneering professor in the history of science. And Price examined the mechanism beginning in 1958 and continued to to be engaged with it until his death in 1983 from a heart attack. And that year, 1983, is kind of, that, that'll serve as kind of a, a midpoint where we'll pause for this episode and, and pick it back up next time. Um, Price subscribed to the hypothesis that the mechanism is a type of ancient computer. Yeah. Right? So he was finally, you know, we, we finally got to that point where they're like, okay, maybe this could the be 80s. some kind of, no, so the 50s. He started. Oh, he died in 83. Yeah, he started it, looking it, into it. it in the 50s. And of course, by this time, computers had been a thing for a while, right? Charles Babbage conceived of the first kind of modern computer in, you know, like, what was the 1870s or something. And, you know, modern punch card computers were starting to be used, you know, beginning, what, maybe in, like, the 20s or something, or the 30s, I'm not sure. So I think it, it's interesting to think about how we, we kind of had to catch back up with this whole concept of using a machine to calculate um, from, you know, 2,000 years. We, we finally got back to the point where people were like, Oh, yeah, maybe it's this thing that's kind of like a computer, you know? Yeah. But maybe they thought about it that that's way so in ancient Greece, too. You that's know? so weird. Whoever made this thing obviously knew it was doing calculations. So essentially, what was it? was a computer. Uh, it's, it's just so cool. It's kind of interesting that we haven't found another. Yes, and we'll definitely talk about that, too, um, and how we kind of have. Ooh. So Price, you know, he... he um, like I said, was definitely open to the idea of this being a very sophisticated device, which would have been used to predict future astronomical phenomena, a kind of super astrolabe with a predictive, you know, ability. And Price found that the markings on the device that he could see were uh, calendrical. They showed the days, the months, etc. And he surmised that there must have been pointers. Calendar. It's a calendar, exactly. That there must have been pointers, like on a cl- like on a clock, that had since been lost. And then this is the the main you know thing that people think now. And Price also figured out that the mechanism, um, you know how it worked in terms of the gears. And he saw that the largest gear clearly represented the solar motion. So, you know, one time around the sun was one time around the gear. And they would kind of figure all this out based on how quickly, how long it took to do one rotation. Right. How many gears there are is how long it takes to do one rotation, which you then map onto the actual movement of the sun Oh wow! And then and then the other gears represent other things. That's and, very complicated. And we'll we'll get into <laughs> the specifics of that in in, in episode two. 
Um, but yes, by counting the number of teeth on the gears, which sometimes was kind of in contention, um, because obviously a lot of these gears have been broken off, so you can only count so many, um, one was able to calculate, and particularly the price was able to calculate the motion and presumably, presumably the maker's idea of the motion of the celestial bodies. But unfortunately, like I said, many of the teeth were missing and many, many more were hidden within the mechanism. So we had to kind of wait until, you know, technology caught up. And in 1971, the first X-rays were made of the mechanism. So this kind of marks the the beginning of the modern, okay. you know, re- research into the Antikythera what mechanism. What did they find? So with um, the X-rays, Price and other investigators, you know, they could see most of the hidden teeth. So at that point, they could pretty much count up the teeth that were were in there. And Price developed schematics of what he thought the mechanism would have looked like and actually made a model of it. So for the first time, we actually had a working model of what a person in the ancient world may have actually dealt with, you know, in their hands, which which is pretty, pretty cool. Uh, So Price uh, summed up his findings this way, quote, Nothing like this instrument is preserved elsewhere. Nothing comparable to it is known from any scientific text or literary illusion. On the contrary, from all that we know of science and technology in the Hellenistic age, we should have felt that such a device could not exist. Close quote. And I'll just point out that the no literary illusion, you know, part, that's not actually quite true. I'll, I'll get into oh. this, but there are actual literary allusions to devices like this, particularly uh, by Cicero in, oh. in ancient Rome a few hundred years after the Antikythera shipwreck, but but two devices of this kind. So um, it's uh, Price's thought was that his discovery would have this huge impact, right, on the history of science. Like I said, he, he was like a historian of science, right? One of the sort of, you know, Uh, trailblazers of that field and society's perception of ancient Greek technology, he felt should have been fundamentally altered by this discovery. Right. Yeah. In in a way that we kind of now think, but that's not how people thought when they, in in the early seventies, like when when he first came out with this, he he came out with this big treatise about it in 1974 and it, it just kind of fell flat, did not have the, the impact that he thought it, it should have. Um, and he also thought that there must have been other mechanisms like that, like the Antikythera mechanism yeah. out there, right? Um, obviously, this is part of the mystery. Why is there not? The thinking is that a sophisticated mechanism like this would not have been the first and only one ever made, right? That just it's would be way too implausible that this would have been the first attempt at something like this, right? It's way too complicated to be the first. There must have been simpler precedents which are just not extant. Like, almost everything from the ancient world is not extant, (laughs) you know? Um, Most of it at some point was burned or destroyed or whatever. It's it's just how things go. So, um, in reference, though, to Price's um, treatise, um, it, it didn't have the impact that he thought it would, like I said. Partly, this was probably because of the kind of intellectual you know, indifference and inertia of the time. This this did not 
fit the mold of what people thought ancient cultures and ancient technology should have looked like at all. And therefore it was kind of ignored. But it was also unfortunately mixed up with this whole ancient aliens thing that we've mentioned before. And this guy named Eric von Deniken, which I, I, whom I believe we've also mentioned before who wrote chariots of the gods. And unfortunately Eric von Deniken kind of sullied, this whole notion of the Antikythera mechanism. But ju- just to make perfectly clear, it, it has nothing to do with that. And it never did. <laughs> it was just like a misunderstanding. So, like, it it has nothing to do with ancient aliens. Just if you were wondering, it, it just doesn't. Just, it doesn't. Aliens? No, it doesn't. <laughs> okay, so, uh, once again, though, the research languished. Um, but while the Antikythera mechanism was on display, which it was, you know, kind of continuously, right, Um, at the National Museum in Athens. It did catch the eye of my favorite scientist, one Richard Feynman, the eminent physicist. And um, it was uh, literally something about which Feynman wrote home. So, you know, it was like remarkable for him in that way. And he wrote to his family that, on the whole, of the National Museum was, quote, slightly boring because we have seen so much of that stuff before, except for one thing. Among all those art objects, there was one thing so entirely different and strange that it is nearly impossible. It was recovered from the sea in 1900 and is some kind of machine with gear trains, very much like the inside of a modern wind-up alarm clock, close quote. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the people like Richard Feynman could see, like, there's some thing here. Like, there's more to this than they're telling us. It's not just some astrolabe. Like, it's it's something really, really, you know, um, wor- worth worth looking more into. But unfortunately, the researchers at the museum at that time, they really just ignored it. They just really didn't care. They were just, they were kind of puzzled, actually, by Feynman's fascination with it. When he asked like more questions about it, they were like, "Why do you want to know about that? It's well, super boring." They, they just <laughs> like, thought what? it was what a clock, or I, they they thought it would yeah, it was basically just a simple clock, um, and they didn't think that the the gears were what they were, but they obviously were. Um, and not only did it though catch the attention of Richard Feynman, it also caught the attention of a young boy named Xenophon Musas, who will come back. In episode two, a little cliffhanger, and um, Xenophon could identify with Feynman's fascination. He would go there every day, pretty much, to just stare at the Antikythera mechanism, yeah. this, this little boy, and, you know, wonder kind of sparking in him. And, and this created a lifelong interest in ancient engineering. He eventually became part of the team researching uh, the Antikythera mechanism wow. later on. So we'll, we'll kind of get back to him as well. Um, but but just uh, as a little prelude to what we'll get into in part two, which is um, the second half of the research. So, you know, a lot more x-rays and, and deeper um, uh, analysis and uh, detail about how the mechanism works, uh, who made it, when was it made, all that kind of stuff. Um, we'll, we'll get into a lot of detail. So that but but I mean, we're already at, yeah, almost 115 now. So I think I've I that was enough for one episode. <laughs> okay, so that was it. Wow. Yeah. 
I like I said, it's a big thing. It's it's actually a, there's a lot more to it than you I would had think. no idea there was so much more to it. There's a lot, and there and there's more to it even than I'm gonna talk about, you know. And um, just to talk about my sources a little bit. So um, I kind of had a lot. Um, so I, I I just I got kind of into looking at <laughs> this one. It was really interesting. Um, John Seabrook at New at the New Yorker got a lot of information from that. Um, Wikipedia, of course, uh, the Antikythera Mechanism, Page, amongst others, um, a BBC documentary titled The 2,000-Year-Old Computer Decoding the Antikythera Mechanism, um, Joe Marchant at Smithsonian, Sarah Kaplan at the Washington Post, Ian Sample at The Guardian, Brian Resnick at Vox, Trevor at Atlas Obscura, uh, James McDonald at JSTOR, and a National Geographic documentary entitled The World's Oldest Computer. It seems like you got a lot of good... Yeah, there's a lot of good information about yeah. it out there. Um, but yeah, when we were talking about it earlier, you know, um, <laughs> I told you how long my write-up was, and uh, we decided I should probably do two parts. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't want to skimp, but I also didn't want to overload everybody. So uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we so much appreciate it. And, uh, I particularly get, get tickled every time I see a new listen on there. You, you, you get, huh? I get tickled. I I get all, uh, you know, uh, I get happy. Uh, it makes me happy. So I, I appreciate it. You know, everybody, um, we, 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 we very much appreciate it. You know, all our listeners all over the world. I think it's so cool that we get listeners from all different every countries. Time I, every time I think ah, about I it, I'm, it, I just, I'm just like, the internet. Like, <laughs> I know, that's what I love. I love the internet because I... That's just where it comes back I to. I can say something, and then in, like, two minutes, someone in Aust- Australia could be listening to it. You know, it's... Not this, because we're recording this on Sunday, but, uh, uh, you know, you, you a lot of times we're recording it right before. Shout out to all my college students. Yep. School starts. Yep, going back tomorrow, going right? Back to school. For you, yeah, over here at ISU. So, the Redbirds, the coolest of mascots. Well. <laughs> I say that my, my, my mascot for my undergrad was the Wildcats. It's like the most generic one. <laughs> Wildcats, Evan, when you had a high school musical. I've not seen high school musicals. So I have I weird shit not. in the news. Do you have weird shit in the news? I think maybe I do. Okay, you go, and then I'll see if I do. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about this um, drug tunnel that was found in Arizona. Now, this has been, I believe, the third tunnel that they found within a month, and it kind of comes right in between this border wall debate. Right. Right. So this was along the, um, the Arizona border and they suspect that it was used to smuggle drugs and people across the US Mexico border. So right, it's the third time that they had made such a discovery in less than a month. It's it's crazy. Yeah. It's underneath a manhole, underneath drainage channels below the downtown areas of the twin cities of Nogales. Mhm. It's crazy. And I think it's about 35 feet long? Hmm. Yes, wait. 25 feet long and two to three feet high. 
Hmm. So you're Two hunching. to three feet high. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They're, very, be pretty they're scary. very small. Yeah. But yeah, definitely people. I mean, wherever there are border walls, people create tunnels under the border walls. It's pretty ubiquitous. I mean, if the conditions allow it. But it's, yeah, that's definitely a feature of the, the Mexican. Yeah, that's it's pretty. It's the uh, world we live in. You know, it's 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 a a not it, it's an issue that one could anticipate with with a border wall construction. Now you could say, okay, we'll just build it down too, right? It's really expensive. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's extremely expensive. Because then you, you know. got to break ground. Yeah, and you have to you have to yeah exactly. You know, it's just so much more involved. You know, it's I. I guess we don't really need to get into a whole thing, right? But, you know. I mean, I have many thoughts about this, obviously. <laughs> Mario has many thoughts on... About many things. Then that's where many we're th- things that have to do with politics. And that's what we're thinking kind of about doing for... You know, because we, we haven't been doing the weird shit extras at time and yeah, life. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to but, y'all. You know, it's, I don't think we're going to do them because... It just it just didn't it didn't take off, you know. It didn't seem like something that we should keep doing, right? But we're thinking about what else we should do because we want to, you know, make the Patreon page more of a you know thing and uh, give you all more content. We know that's that's part of being a pro podcaster. You have to make you know lots of content, extra content. Hang out with us. You know, we 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 want to invite you to hang out with us as we talk. About all the stuff that we talk about when we're not doing the pod, which is I, for real. I mean, me, you know, me talking <laughs> at you about politics, uh, culture, um, the news, you know, wh- whatever. You know, I think we're just going to talk about whatever for a while, and that'll be. We'll it. see what happens, and we'll do it every couple of weeks. I kind of want it to be the springboard, though, is politics because sure, there's just so much out there now, sure. and. You know, two, three years ago, I would not have thought about doing this at all. Uh-huh. Uh, things have definitely yeah. changed. Things are changing. Things are changing. Time, Times are changing. Times are a-changing. Times they are a-changing. Bob Dylan? No. No. You hate no. Bob Dylan. I don't like Bob Dylan. In the times they are a-changing. Most people love Bob Dylan. What's our exit going to be? I'm going to keep it all. I guess I don't know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.